Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And the human voice that you're going to be hearing today on the other end of this microphone is Mr. Tony Peterson. A little bit about Tony. He specializes in race discussion. Tony Peterson has designed and facilitated diversity lectures and workshops in corporate, community, and academic settings since 2004. His academic clients include Harvard University and Northwestern University. His corporate clients include Nike International, the American Dental Association, the Country Music Association, and Dallas Children's Theater. Tony's 2014 TEDx talk, What I Am Learning from My White Grandchildren, Truths About Race, has gained more than 3.5 million views. He presented a second TEDx talk in 2021 called Beyond Empathy, Next Steps in Talking About Race. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob, for, for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, you and I have our, our, our new friends. We've gotten to know each other on the phone call, and but we made connection over LinkedIn. And right. I was really intrigued, obviously, by your TED Talk, the popularity that you have there. Obviously, the title, What I Am Learning from My White Grandchildren, Truths About Race. So I want to talk about that today because it's certainly intriguing. It's something that I'm trying to, to learn more about. And if any of my listeners have, have listened to any of the past episodes of The Human Voice or Rumors of Grace, you know that that's a big topic. One of the things that I found interesting specifically is you and I share a real love for curiosity and empathy. And in your TED Talk, you talk about your second TED Talk, Beyond Empathy, you talk about empathy and curiosity and how to cultivate that. So before we get into all those details, Tony, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into this particular line of work and passion. Um, sure. Uh, my background is really varied, and and I have kind of stumbled into diversity and inclusion as a, as a professional part of my life, right. even though it's been a personal part of my life as long as I can remember. I grew up in, in an army family, and you know, pe people have different images of what it means to grow up in the army. One of the most significant parts of that is that you're interacting often you're interacting with people of different ethnicities. You know, dad even said to us once when we were all grown, he said, you know, I've been thinking about your, your growing up years. And I'm thinking that more than being African-American, your race is army brat. And, you know, if you know any army brats, you, the brat is not a bad word to us. I, I think dad overstated it because we don't escape our race as it's been applied to us or as we claim it. But so I had that, but I had that army experience. And then the last few years of my growing up were spent in Hawaii. And so, so you got that whole multicultural experience of living in Hawaii. And then beyond that, I've moved and lived in different regions of the country. I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a long time, where when I was in, in university, many of my friends had never had uh, a Black friend before. They had never known anyone closely who, who was not white. And so we there was that whole experience. And then moving, I moved from this from the Northwest 
to the Southeast and, and experience what, what it is to be a Black man in the Southeast in general, in Tennessee, less broadly, and in Nashville, even more specifically. And, and I've learned about, you know, the regions of Nashville and, and race looks different around this this metropolis. So a lot of that, that's that's kind of my just general experience. But but the actual professional part started, as you read, in 2004, when I was working uh, um, for a major denomination, church denomination. And we designed, a group of us designed some diversity uh, training events for our employees. And we also designed some events for pastors who had to come to a Saturday morning diversity training in order to keep their their pastor credentials. So that's where my professional work here started, but it's picked up more as the years have, have gone on. That's fascinating. Tell me the the inspiration for your TED Talk in the first one. Well, you know the inspiration is my grandchildren. So we have, my wife and I have 12 grandchildren. 10 of them are white. None of them have, have African-American in them. I married a woman who, who had f- four white children. And, and many of them, well, seven of them have lived in our home for long periods of time. So I've had all these opportunities to have conversations with mm-hmm. them. And a, a friend of my, mine organized TEDx Antioch, which you know is uh, Antioch is is a part of the, the Nashville community. And when I saw that she was doing this event, I, I asked, you know, you know, if I could be a part of it. And so we wrestled with what would be the topic of my talk. And, and I started telling these stories about conversations that I've had with my grandchildren. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned the title. One of the other, you know, we got together as speakers to sort of help people, help each other along in the preparation. And one of the other speakers advised me not to use the expression white grandchildren and just say my grandchildren. And other folks pushed back and said, oh, no, he has to say white grandchildren, because that's going to be the thing that makes people say, what is this about? Why did he say white grandchildren? But these were, you know, none of these were planned, although in time, I've started practicing some things that I've learned from some folks I've, I've, I've studied, like Dr. Jennifer Harvey, who wrote the book Raising White Children, and she talks about um, she talks about the necessity for parents of white children to name race early and often in the, in those children's lives. So, so I've started doing that even more intentionally. I'll, but most of these conversations with my grandchildren were came about organically, and and I saw them as opportunities to to learn myself from them as well as them learning from me about those sorts of things. That's fascinating. I would love, before we get into the details of your talk, I would love to hear, you know, there's so much controversy. Our our country is so divided here in America. I know people are listening from all over the world. And I know it's not just in America. You made a statement. You said you followed the advice of delineating a child's color early and specifically. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very contradictory to, to a lot of the opinions that we have today about 
you know, you hear things like you shouldn't see color. You know, the more that we talk about color, the more that we are divided. Kids should not be inundated with the, their differences. We should focus on what we have alike. All of these type things. How would you respond to that? And, and maybe the better question is, Tony, what made you lean toward and why are you a proponent of being very early with children on delineating what their color is? Well, Dr. Emerson yep. is another person I've followed. And Dr. Emerson is a professor of sociology who encourages his students in one class to, 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 to practice an experiment. And when I say it encourages it, he encourages it. It's an assignment, so they have to do it. But the, ex the experiment is to take 24 hours, and whenever you're talking to someone about other people in your life, um, identify their race and specifically identify white people as white people. So say my white wife, say my white children, say my white professor. And then he has them write a paper about, about what that experience was like, what they, how they felt, were they comfortable with it, were they not? How did people react to them when they, when they, when they talked that way? And, and he did give his, his students an out. He said, if you decide that this is too hard for you to do, then you have to write a paper about why you didn't do it. And when he comes back, after that 24 hours and students report back, there's, there's a, a similar pattern that happens every single time. And that is that the white students in his class have, have a very difficult time with this experience, with this experiment. But the people of color do not have a difficult time with this experience because people of color live their race every day. It, it has to be a part of what we do because people look at us and we look, we do look at one another. And one of the things we see and some research says the first thing we see when we see another person is not their gender, not their age, not their, none of those other things. The very first thing, according to some research is what we perceive to be their race. And part of the problem with race is is we don't even, and I say this in that first TED talk, we don't agree on what it is. But, but to say I'm colorblind is actually to say, first of all, to say something that is, that is not true, at least according to um, some scientists, that we do see race and we do attribute something to that. And now what we attribute to it varies um, from person to person. The other thing is, when we say we don't see race, we're actually minimizing someone's identity. We're minimizing a part of a person's identity. And you'll remember mm -hmm. in that first TED talk where I, I say some, some about that, but we, you know, race is a part of who we are. We are, we, we are diverse in many way, ways outside of race. And when I do lead diversity, inclusion, and equity training, we talk about the different ways in which we are all different. But we also talk about the value of difference. There's, there, I mean, when I first started doing this work, we talked about the value of diversity in nature. And so we talked about, about how farmers rotate uh, crops. It's not great to plant corn 
after corn after corn. Um, I don't know. I don't know all the details of that, but but the whole idea of rotating crops in in order to feed new nutrients in that that feed those new those new crops coming up. So we started talking about diversity that way, but it's the same concept with human beings. We we we've learned that the business case for diversity in the workplace is when we value diverse ideas, even we get better ideas. And we become a stronger um, organization, not only a safer, emotionally safer organization, but a stronger organization, and it reflects the bottom line. So there's so many ways that focusing on our differences is, is really valuable. That's really great. I love the statement you made earlier. You were talking about how, and maybe you need to re- restate it, but okay. that when you don't acknowledge someone's race, you're actually ignoring a part of their identity. Is that is that how you said it? Yeah, and that is how I said it. You know, today I was doing some reading in racial identity development, which which I guess only diversity nerds read that sort of stuff. But they talk about a progression, especially the, well, the chapter I was reading was about, about white folks. And they talk about a progression f- from having no sense of race at all for, for some white folks and even feeling discomfort about uh, identifying who they are as as white folks this progression to rejecting their whiteness and then to a place of accepting their whiteness as a part of the pantheon of ethnicity in our world because and so one of one of my passions is to help white folks get in touch with their whiteness, the good and the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and, and begin to think about how the, the substance of whiteness, because most of us are aware of the substance of, say, Blackness. And, and I am talking for, from a ma- mainly U.S. standpoint, but, but we have a sense of what it means to be black in the United States. We have a sense of what it means to be black in the African diaspora. But but for a lot of folks, I'm thinking about how I how I said this to my 7-year-old granddaughter once. And I think this is in it, it, I don't remember if it's in the second TED talk, but my 7-year-old granddaughter saw Dr. Harvey's book. And the book was called Raising White Kids. And what she said to me is, she said, Peepa, that, that's my name. That's my, that's my grandpa name. She said, Peepa, Got it. <laughs> uh, sometimes they have funny names for books. Like this book is called Raising White Kids. I think that's a funny name. And I said to her, I said, so do you know why there's that book? And I'm taking Dr. Harvey's advice in, when I'm saying this. I said, because there are some white people who see themselves as normal and see everybody else as different. And I said, now that's not your experience because you live here with a black grandpa and you go to school with mostly brown people. And so you can see yourself as normal and different and you can see your friends as normal and as different. But there are some folks, and I said, and especially white folks, who only see themselves as normal and everyone else is different. And that's why there's this book. Hmm. You know, it's so helpful. I know for me to get things from uh, a different perspective because I've had guests on my podcast 
who who really exemplify the fact that for many people of color, like yourself and others, no matter what it may be, you live with the reality of race being an issue in your life, whether it be going to the store and getting pulled over by a police. I've had guests on the on the podcast that said, you know, you don't understand, Bob, what it's like to, in my life, you know, I've been pulled over many times for, from police for no reason other than they just wanted to check me out because all I can gather is my color. There was no reason, no, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Have you experienced that, Bob? And I, and I have to honestly say, that hasn't been a part of my experience. Have I got a speeding ticket? Sure. Have I had a light out or an expired tag when I was younger? Yes, maybe. But have I just been pulled over for no reason just because? No. Well, that's something that I can't relate to. Right. I can't relate to walking into a neighborhood and being suspect and, and people looking at me because of my color. Those are all realities I know that some people have to live with. So again, just to reiterate your point, to, it is degrading and it is denying someone's identity when you say race is not a matter, is not, you should not make it an issue when race has never been an issue for you, but the other person sitting across the table, race has been an issue and it wasn't their choice. So that's really interesting. I'd love to hear that expounded on from the perspective of your relationship with your grandchildren. I want to jump briefly over to your most recent TED Talk, your second one, and I really want to camp on here for the rest of the podcast because I think it's it's really interesting, it's really important, and I think it really crosses so many cultural, socioeconomic, and obviously racial boundaries, but you talk a lot about beyond empathy, the next steps in talking about race. Let's talk about that. What where did that TED Talk grow out of? And what was what was kind of the genesis of that? Well, the genesis of that was, was re really the deaths of the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and the aftermath of, of those killings, and the way we all responded. And I spent a lot of time with a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals working on processing how to respond to what, what had just happened in this series of, of incidents. And, you know, they weren't, they weren't the only incidents that were happening at that time, but they're, they're, they're the ones that got some national attention. And so I'm, I'm facilitating list, listening sessions. I'm leading diversity trainings and inclusive leadership trainings. And months into that, I, I started wondering about when is this going to die down and when are people going to stop being interested in, in these issues anymore? And there are, and there are mul multiple issues. I mean, um, we're talking about police brutality. We're talking about all sorts of criminality. We're talking about vigilantism, you know, all sorts of issues there. But but they coalesce around the idea, the idea of race in our society. And so, you know, people in my in this business, I hate to call it a business because it's a passion. It's, I, I do this work because it's important to me. And sometimes I can get paid for it. 
you know, but but I I was thinking, I was trying to monitor when's this gonna die down. And frankly, it's 2022. There's a lot of attention being paid, but there is some staying power. And so I was wondering, sort of wondering out loud, how do you do do you get people in in a sustained place of let's just say anti-racism when they want to burn out on it, when they want, you know, you know, they want to move to what's the latest thing in the news, what's the latest thing in fashion, what's the latest thing coming out of Hollywood, you know, you, you want to shift to sometimes less important issues. And there are a lot of other important issues, but how do we sustain attention in a way that benefits us all? Because it's not about, you know, let's get all worked up for a long period of time, which, so I just, you know, I probably stole some of these ideas from somebody, but I can't place who they were. I just started ruminating about this idea of empathy, which was huge during that, that time, the spring and summer of 2020. A lot of people were feeling sympathy, empathy. And I, I talk about in that TED talk, I was getting phone calls and, and social media messages from people I barely knew saying, Tony, I'm sorry, you know, and, and what they were expressing was empathy. What they were expressing is a feeling of, I never knew, like you just said, I haven't experienced what you've experienced in, you know, in driving and walking in a store and all those sorts of things. And so for some people, there was the first time that they sensed the empathy, mainly seeing George Floyd being uh, choked to death on that pavement created some empathy for people. But I started to think, is that all, is that all we have? How do we go forward? And so I started thinking about these other, what, what I saw actually happening in the listening sessions. I saw people moving from, from June to July to August and their, their processing was different in June than it was in August. And you could see that they're moving from empathy to curiosity. And so, you know, the New York Times best, bestseller uh, list that summer was, uh, you know, eight out of 10 book, books were about race and diversity and, and equity because people were actually reading these things and, and feeding their curiosity. But it also came, I, as I thought more about it, I thought it needs, we need even more than curiosity. We need a sense of humility that comes down to something like what I said to my seven-year-old granddaughter, it comes down to, to recognizing that no one in the entire world comes into the world with the exact same perspective that I do, or that you do, or that they do. So which means that I see the world one way and the other 7 billion people on this planet see all see the world in a different way. And that means that as, as right as I am about, about almost everything, I'm really not right. You know, there, there, are, there are 7 billion rights out there. And so, so I want to start walking through the world with more humility about my perspective is only a perspective. It is not the perspective. Now, my family of origin would fall out of their chairs if they heard, heard me say that because <laughs> I grew up fighting for my perspective. But I want to be the person who, who hears those other perspectives. And I th think the way forward in areas like diverse, diversity, inclusion, and equity, 
equity is to is is to walk humbly in the world and with that curiosity and also with the empathy. What what are some of the keys from your perspective? When we say the when we use the word empathy, it it connotates so many things, Tony. Empathy means feeling sorry for another person. For another person, they may interpret that as meaning putting yourself in the shoes of another person. For another one person, it means imagining what it might be like to live you know, in a certain culture that's very foreign to yours. What, how would you define empathy? And I guess the greater question, second question is, how do we, how do we develop and live into that in the, in the culture that we find ourselves today? I, I want to answer that a little backwards, because I think um, what we saw during that spring and summer was was a sort of automatic reaction of feeling sorry for some people. And I, that's a beginning point. But I, I really think that, that sustained empathy is, again, and I, I, I sounds like, it sounds like I'm talking in circles, but sustained empathy has to have that element of humility to it. So we can have that moment of feeling sorry for someone or intentionally intentionally putting ourselves in someone else's shoes to the best of our ability because we can't we can't do it fully because but if but if we can develop um, that sense of humility coupled with curiosity that tempers our empathy in a way that makes it more productive makes it more helpful the whole idea of humility is that idea that that no one works through in the world the same way I do. Okay, I'm going to have to figure out how to get back on track here. No problem. Take your time. I think empathy without humility, one, it wears out, and two, it devolves into feeling sorry for people and then not feeling sorry for people. You know, I'm tired of this now. They need to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps or they need to, you know, get a grip on it. You know, I've had a hard life, too. And and look where, where I've gotten myself. I think without without that sense of humility, without that sense even of curiosity, empathy dies and and it becomes pity or something worse than pity. It, it dies and, and devolves into, OK, I gave it to you. I gave you you know, my attention for a little bit. Now you need to get it all together. You know, we see this on a society level. We, we've we heard a lot in the last two years about the advances in the civil rights movement. You know, we had a Civil Rights Act in 1964. We had a, a Voting Rights Act in 1965. What else do y'all want? Why are you still complaining? Look at, you know, we don't have forced segregation anymore. So, what else do you want? I think that's where whatever might have been empathy, people wear out because they don't have that bit of curiosity and they don't have, have that sense of humility. I don't know if I answered your question. Absolutely. That, that's, that's really great. I mean, the, the hard thing about empathy is it's really hard to have empathy. And what I mean by that is 
it's it's hard to see things through another human being's eyes when you've never seen things through another human being's eyes, right? So my lived experiences as a white male, middle-aged white male, is about as far as my reality has ever been. Other than like you, I have lived in other countries and we have some similar backgrounds and that our fathers worked for the government and my dad wasn't in the service. But nevertheless, I have had that fortunate opportunity to live in other cultures outside of the U.S., which I think is really, really important. And so that has given me the opportunity to to dabble in empathy right because i can i can be the the minority in, in another culture whereas i would normally be the majority in tennessee as a white male so living in places i think too one of the things that you mentioned is that connection between what did you say empathy and what was the curiosity other and curiosity humility. and mm-hmm. humility curiosity is so so important i feel like there's so many people that aren't curious about other people's lives and and the, the same people that are saying oh voting rights have already been taken care of i want to you know just lock into my tribe and surround myself with people who agree with me and i'm going to move from another state to a state that is more formidable to my values, which is fine, but it it seems to me that is a real lack of curiosity. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I helped lead an inclusive leadership workshop yesterday for executives of a pretty major company. I, I'm not sure I should say it out loud, but but there was so there were 10 of them and it was the CEO of this company and and the VPs of, of various things. And one guy as his job was VP of quality assurance. And I'll just say this and it might it might signal who it is, but but he said, yeah, my job is to taste the chocolate. And he said, and so but we were asking them, we asked each of them to tell us what your job is and why you were there. And he said, well, my job is to taste the chocolate. And I am here because I am genuinely curious about every person I meet. And I want to cultivate that in other folks. I want people to be um, curious. And we looked at the demographics of, of their organization and we, cause we use a lot of data and, and so their demographics showed, for instance, that at the top, and if these are the people in the room with us, at the top, they were 100% white and they were 90% male. And then as you move to the next level, there is some leadership that, that is female, not very much leadership that's non-white. And then you move down to the regular employees in that, in that organization, and it is a grand mix of diversity. We have racial diversity, black, brown, white, Native American folks. We have actually more women than men. And I say all that to say that this guy, who is a VP of Tasting Chocolate, he wants to know those people in his organization. And when he gets to know the people in his organization, it strengthens the organization. So his curiosity is going to strengthen that organization. And as he, as a VP, inculcates that same sensibility to his direct reports, they become a stronger organization. 
then employees, and this is what they're working for, employees are working in a place where, where they want to be, and they're not looking to where they're going to go somewhere else because they feel like they belong there. They feel like they can bring their whole authentic selves to work because this VP, amongst other people, wants to know me, wants to know who I am. And so I want to give to this company because they want to know who I am. Again, that's just that's just business case. Works the same way in our personal lives. Works the same way in our social lives amongst us. And yes, there's a inertia that makes most of us want to be around people who are just like us. And that's not necessarily just that's not just race. That's certainly socioeconomic. That's certainly in lots of what uh, you know, we look at our religious faith or non-faith. We want to be around people just like us. Um, but we have to think about the richness of life, what we have to contribute and what others have to contribute to us, and think about, can, am I curious enough to enrich my life with other folks? That's really good, Tony. You know, curiosity is something you either, well, let me say it this way. I think curiosity is is something you have or you don't have. And if you don't have it, you got to work real hard to cultivate it because it's easy to get comfortable. It's easy to get non-curious for various reasons. Um, you're around people that share your interest. You're around people that um, believe the same way. You're around people and cultures that reinforce maybe your own biases. And, and again, I want to be really clear, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it. There's nothing wrong at all. Actually, there's some real positives with being finding and, and, and engaging with and finding community with your own tribe. There is good things about that. But just as, just as much as there's good things about that, I think if, if it causes you to lose curiosity, if it causes you to be less empathetic, that's the point where you have to step back and say, how can I include other people that look different, that think different into my tribe so that I can be a better human being in the end? Would you agree with that or I would agree, but but I think there's a real landmine in that when we talk about including people into our tribe, because sometimes what we say is as long as they jump through the right hoops, exactly. then they can be included in our tribe. So if they, you know, yeah, you can be African-American, but if you don't make the kind of money that we make, or if you don't subscribe to the narrow religious beliefs that we have. And, and when I say narrow, I don't, I just mean, I mean, they could be any narrow. Specific. Belief. Specific. I mean, they could be atheistic, narrow beliefs for, for that matter. So, so I think, and again, that's where the humility comes in. When we start setting up rules about how we're going to let people into our tribe, uh, are those tribal rules? Are those rules saying you have to jump through certain hoops in order to be my friend. So again, that's where the humility comes in. That's where the curiosity comes in. And, and again, later, where empathy comes in. Because what happened during that spring and summer of 2020 was people were blindsided. And I actually, I, I just want to say this. I, I have not said this before. I, I actually predicted this in my first TED Talk, where I said, when we don't talk about race, then racial issues come up and we're blindsided. When, and like you use the word uh, color 
colorblind. When we come, when we walk through life colorblind, then these events come up and we're blindsided and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to act. We don't know how to, we, and we're, we're hit with reality that hasn't been our reality for all of our lives. And, and I'm grateful for the brave people who said during, after those incidents, who said, I need to, I need to know more. I need to, you talked about curiosity as being either there or not there. These are people who had just a little bit of curiosity and decided to feed it with, you know, reading books, with talking with their friends, you know, and, and sometimes you don't know what to do. You know, I, I hear people all the time saying, yeah, I care about diversity. I care, care about equity and inclusion, but I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Well, these were people who, and a lot of people, millions of people who said, I have to do something. I have to say something. I have to learn something. So what was the name of that book again? You know, and and started feeding their curiosity that might have just been, as we say, a mustard seed, but they started feeding it. Yeah. This is interesting. You know, you talk in your second, in your one of your TED Talks, I believe is your second one about the power of proximity. That's so important. What would you say to either the African-American, a citizen in, in, in America, and or the white citizen in, Amer- in America, or the Latino who's saying, you know, I don't know a lot of people that look or think different than me. I, I would ask, I would encourage them to ask themselves why and to find out what they can, if, if they want to rectify that, and how to rectify that. And, and in many cases, this, this is a great example of where folks might do it wrong first, but, but is it important enough to you to do it, even though you might do it wrong? Because the discomfort that you feel, and, and I, I really don't want to be hyperbolic here, but the discomfort you feel doesn't compare to the discomfort that folks who, that, that, some folks have lived with for all of their lives. That discomfort is is minimal compared to what people have. And, and you have to determine wh- whether it's important enough to you. I mean, mm. but if you if you determine that it's important, then be wi- willing to make some mistakes and and listen. Um, one of the people on that same training yesterday said, "My objective here," and and it was a white male. He said, I, I, I'm working with, with a, a, well, people of color ethnic group in, in our organization. They have an they have a employee resource, resource group where people of color can come together and find some camaraderie. You know, I, I don't know how often they meet, but, but, but each of those groups has to have a member of, of the management team as, as an advisor, as an advisor to them. And he said, yeah, I'm the advisor, but I've chosen to keep my mouth shut. And so I'm really not doing any advising. I'm learning from them. And he said, I, I, I found out that my advising was, was only, would only put them in a box that, that would totally negate the reason for this group in the first place. So he said, I, as a white male, am officially the advisor to this group. And the way I chose, I choose to do that is to listen to them, to hear them. And he said, you cannot imagine how much I have learned, not only from the different ethnicities of people, but from, this, from, 
from the social economic realities, you know, talking about how the city they live in, only wealthy people can afford to live in the city. And so their lower level employees live farther away and have farther to go to get to work. And so, so they, they're spending all this time commuting while the folks in the upper levels are, you know, and, and again, I don't, I don't want to overstate that, but that was one of the things he said he learned. Their experience is completely different from mine. There's some real value there. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you is, I, you, I know you work a lot, Tony, with organizations and companies and businesses, and you consult with some very large companies. What would you say to, and I hear this a lot, to the employer, to the boss, to the executive who says behind closed doors, I want to hire the best and most qualified person. I don't want to hire someone because of their color. And I don't care what color they are. If they're qualified, I want to hire them. What would you say to that? Have, were you sitting in on that session yesterday? <laughs> I must have been. Um, actually, no, I wasn't. So we have actually, you know, I have some consulting group, groups that I work with, and some of them are, are have become good friends, and we all have different answers to that question. So I'll give you my, my, my normal answer, and that is when you talk about the most qualified person, what are the criteria you're using for most qualified. And so for instance, this group that we were working with yesterday, one of their values is collaboration. One of their strongest values is collaboration. So you're not looking at a resume and saying just what has this person accomplished and what can they further accomplish? You're looking at how together. Also, so that's one part of it. Another part of it is, is a job description that does not exist in a vacuum. What we're looking for on paper has to mesh with what we're wanting to do as an organization. So if you're an inclusive organization, one of your values is to have a diverse workforce. And it's not just racial diversity. It's not just gender diversity. It's diversity of thought even. And, and so when we have diversity of thought, we, we make better decisions. We get new information, we have a catalyzing effect that that helps the bottom line. I mean, again, we're going back to the bottom line. The I was thinking about this just yesterday and I thought there is the the idea of an objective assessment of an employee is a myth. There's no assessment. We can have something on paper and we can measure people on paper, but the decision that we make better not be purely on paper. One is, is and, and I'll use an expression that I try not to use jargon, but, but one is we all have bias. We all have bias that we're not aware of. So when we look at folks, I mean, one way this has been tested is resumes have been sent out, identical resumes. One has the name that sounds white, and one has a name that sounds ethnic in one way. And, and this this study has been done many, many times. It's experiment, and the result is the same. The name that sounds white gets more response than the name that sounds, as we say, ethnic. And I, I like to tell people, everyone is ethnic. We're all ethnic. But if it sounds black or if it sounds Latino, 
or if it sounds Asian of some sort, you're not as likely to get a response. So, so this idea of objective of objective evaluation is a myth. And so let's 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 expose it. And let's say, yes, we do consider our diversity altogether. The the a related myth is the myth is the myth of meritocracy that if you've done the most in the past you should get the next job what if what if the best thing for our company is to promote someone who is who is moving quickly quickly and showing some kind of momentum even though their their total background is not they don't have as more as many credentials as someone else, but they have something that if we if we nurture that, it's going to build the company in ways that someone with this other set of credentials can't. So and so one other thing I encourage this these folks yesterday is look at your job job descriptions, look at them, and make sure you you're putting in those jobs descriptions, not just hard skills, but soft skills. What are those other uh, characteristics uh, for the skills for that individual, but also what do you want for this company and and the interaction of folks in, in that company? That's really good. You've brought up some points, Tony, that I've never really considered. And I, I love the response of, well, what how do you define a truly qualified individual? And I've never thought of it, thought of it in that in that concept. I've always considered qualification very black and white and skills based. Where you're talking about soft skills that sometimes somebody with a rich, much richer and diverse background or different background than the majority can bring a different way to interact and see things and solve problems, which might be the more qualified person over the person who might have more education, et cetera. So, or more experience in a particular direction. Yes. Um, um, that is on the, that is on the job description. And the other thing, you know, I, I, one of the, one of one of my um, passions right now is I help people with resumes, and so that's some of the work that I do right now. And one of the things we laugh about is when they're writing, when we're writing their resume for their current job, and they're you know, writing the you know their duties for their current job. We laugh because their duties for their current job in the job description ne- never matches what they actually do. You know, we write these job descriptions, and then we and then we hire folks, and they end up doing a lot of other things that aren't on the job description, and don't do some of the stuff that is on the job description. That's so really I great. would say let's look at our job descriptions. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. Well, Tony, I know people can look up your TEDx talks. They can look up your name, Anthony Peterson, and the first one is called. What I am learning from my white grandchildren, truth about race. And then his second one that he just did last year was Beyond Empathy, Next Steps and Talking About Race. If, uh, if people want to get in touch with you and learn more, where else can they find you? Is your, do you have social media? I do. I'm on LinkedIn as Anthony Peterson Speaks. And so you can go there or, or you can just you can just um, search for my name on LinkedIn. I also have a website, anthonypetersonspeaks.com. And so that's another place you can reach me. And I'm on, I'm on 
Instagram. I think that's also Anthony Peterson Speaks. Um, awesome. Great. Well, thank you for taking some time, Tony. And I love what you're doing. Keep up the great work. We'll be excited to follow you. And I just encourage people to go watch those TED Talks. I think you'll be encouraged. And if they want to get in touch with you, Anthony Peterson Speaks, just Google it up and you should be able to find it. Thank you, Anthony, for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. It's been fun. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.